0: All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live. That's right, from Judea to the world you're a part of and wherever you are. Thank you, Hashem. I just landed uh, back in the Holy Land a few hours ago. Then I got stuck in the Meches. Meches is the, uh, you know, import tax authority for hours, hours, because I was bringing in a drone as donation, but there was paperwork problems etc and it got stuck there for hours and before that I was in Miami Florida I was there in order to receive an ambulance from the Magid family of Aventura Chevron the Jewish community of Chevron received a beautiful new ambulance fully decked out and ready to go it's going to be on the boat soon, but we had an event in Aventura, Florida. It was a very, very special event. For me, a career highlight, bringing a beautiful, shiny new ambulance to Chevron from the Jews of, of Florida. Just uh, altogether quite emotional, quite moving. And I was very thankful uh, to have that opportunity. And regarding the ambulance, uh, I actually gave a speech in Aventura uh, when I received the ambulance uh, there. There were so many great people that were part of it, but especially the Magid family, Larry and Millie Magid, they are the donors, and I had a great merit to be there and to receive it, and this is the things that I said there. I want you to note that uh, originally, Larry and Millie uh, were gonna have a small family event for this ambulance. Uh, for us, it was a big deal. Uh, we wanted it very much. We need a new ambulance of Hadron. I'll explain a little bit why, but this was supposed to be a small event. It was planned some time ago. But then uh, October 7th happened and uh, Larry and Millie decided that this event of the ambulance would become a bigger event, which is an educational event as well. Uh, so we're really all winners tonight. We're, we're, we're learning a lot. Uh, we're connecting to one another. And uh, we're. we're not, I want you guys, when you go out there today, give that ambulance a kiss, okay? And wish it, give it a little, you know, like, like at the coattail give it Give it a little prayer that everybody who's in that ambulance is going to stay healthy and well and that it's only used for, for baby births. Um, and only good things. Amen, right? Amen. Amen. That's right. Good. Uh, Yofi. Why don't we need an ambulance so much for Hebron? is that Hebron's location uh, is such that it really needs uh, the very best of ambulances. Why is that? Uh, we're south of Jerusalem, about one hour. One hour from Jerusalem and one hour from Beersheba. And we're kind of by ourselves. The nearest big city to us is Hebron. The Arab Hebron, okay? And that's not exactly a very friendly city. Uh, today, Arab Hebron is uh, led by a dude named Tiasir Abu Snena. In 1980, Tiasir Abu Snena was one of the team members who killed six Jews in Hebron. How is he the mayor? Well, he got out through a different deal called the Jibril deal. He was, he was released. He was in the prison in Jericho, actually. He was released. And how do you know it's the same Tiasir Abusnena? I mean, like that's a common name enough, right? Tiasir Uh No, he runs on that ticket. He makes videos being like, you see? I killed six Jews, elect me. He's won three elections in a row. So uh, that's a little sad. And Hebron today happens to be one of the capitals of Hamas uh, in, in the Judea area, south of Jerusalem. Um, so I, had a, I had a guy who, 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 who had an extra drone laying around, he bought another drone from the army, I said, listen, I need that drone he says, why should I give you the drone? I said to him, uh, because we're a small Jewish community surrounded by an Arab city ruled by Hamas he goes, okay, okay you got it, alright so, we, we need that drone and we need that, uh, we need that ambulance uh, and we need it because we're not really close to anybody, okay, that's some of the, the, the bad news, here's the good news the good news is that Uh, The Jewish people have been living in Hebron for over 3,000 years. It is the world's oldest Jewish community. That's pretty cool, right? right. right. Uh, It's also the scene of the first purchase of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Abraham, uh, at the passing of his wife Sarah, uses that crisis as an opportunity also to purchase, the first purchase of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And he purchases, he negotiates for the Marat Machpelah, they offer it to him for free. He says, nothing doing, I want to pay money for it. Why is that? Because he wants it as an eternal inheritance of the Jewish people. And so uh, it was the first purchase of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. It was later in the first capital of King David. King David ruled in Hebron, for seven or seven and a half years, two different places in the Tanakh, that it talks about that. Later on, about 2,000 years ago, King Herod uh, built a building. Now, so King Herod is famous for a few things, you know, uh, the Western Wall, you've been there, the Kotel. But the Kotel is only a piece uh, of what was really there. And so it's just a remnant. Other things that Herod built, like Masada, are just a remnant. All this other stuff is ruins. Caesarea, is like sank. Okay? The port of Caesarea. So he built a lot of monumental things, but they all got destroyed or partially uh, ruined, whatever. The the building atop of the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs, which houses Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, that building is extended and perfect the way it was originally built, only added on to. It is a, it is a marvel.
1: It is really
0: one of the seven marvels of the world. It's one of the most amazing things in the world. Also, by the way, notice it doesn't. It's not a place that houses uh, fathers. You come to Washington D.C., you see the Washington Monument, fathers. Lincoln Memorial, father. Jefferson, father. Now uh, you go to uh, South Dakota, you go to the uh, now Rushmore. I think it's got a different Indian name, by the way. It's a little different topic. Anyway, so, uh, you go to Mount Rushmore, fathers. Now, contrary to what some people have been told, you cannot make a family with only fathers. And so, <laughs> so it is fathers and mothers. Sometimes people say to me, Isha, you're very liberal that you mention the fathers and mothers every time. I say, no, I'm conservative. It's conservative family values. It takes fathers and mothers. And that's my Atomach It's the tomb of the mamas and the papas. Uh, of our people, it's really an amazing uh, site. Ariel Sharon, at the end of his life, gave an interview to Ari Shavit, and he said, "He said I made a mistake in my political life. I focused too much on security and didn't talk about identity. I should have taken people instead of to Yad Vashem. I should have taken them to Marat Machpelah. It's quoted in the article. So it's an amazing site, and and it's there to visit. It's two thousand years ago, and the only reason that you can visit it. It's because there is a brave, Rabbi, uh, plug yours for a second, badass Jewish community that holds on to Eretz Israel. <laughs> it's because of that that you can come visit it today. Uh, you cannot visit the tomb of Joseph very easily. You cannot. Because it is uh, it is under uh, the control of, uh, of uh, terrorists. Why? Because there's no Jewish community there to hold on to it. It is a misnomer that people don't understand. The army does not control places. The army defends Jews that live there, so-called settlement. You hold on to a piece of land, then the army can help you uh, fight the bad guys. The key is Jewish so-called settlement. It's not a bad word, settlement, but it's become a bad word. So the Jewish community of Hebron is this brave community that holds on to it. And today, we we are getting a new ambulance. I want to say also thank you so much to our partnership with Magenta View Adon. It's something that's so special to us. Uh, we made a strategic partnership with them many years ago, uh, and uh, they are our health. They are the, the, the thing that sends the, the mothers that uh, were uh, uh, giving birth to your or to your Berseba to be. I also, by the way, mentioned Chabad. Uh, we're in a Chabad uh, Beit Knesset, a Chabad synagogue. I have to mention that Chabad has been very, very close to Hebron for, as I said, 200 years. Right now, we have a piece of property that was lost to Chabad uh, at the beginning of World War One. The Turks nationalized it. The Turks nationalized it. It was a Chabad property. There was a yeshiva there called Taurus There was yeshiva there. The Turks nationalized it. Then the Brits came in. You, you would think the Brits would return it to the Jews. No, they took it over. And they handed it over to the Jordanians. And then when the Israelis took over, even so we didn't e- e- immediately get the property back. After years of fighting the court and Supreme Court, we have retrieved that property. And we're now building, as Larry mentioned, 30 beautiful apartments. So if you're interested in to me. Now also Larry asked me to talk a little just a little bit about Judea and Samaria, which is which is a zoom out a little bit. Uh, zoom out. Uh, what is Judea and Samaria? a little bit misunderstood, and it's a little bit not in the headlines, although CNN wants to meet with me on Thursday, I'm thinking of skipping it, but they, uh, uh, what is Judean Samaria? What is it? Uh, so, in 1948, here's, here's a quiz for you, did we win or lose the 1948 War of Independence? Not a true question here, friends. We won, good, that's right, and that is true. However, bad news is that we did not fully win. We also lost the what I call the heartland of the Holy Land. In that war, Jordan took over. We, we lost to Syria, right? Gaza was taken by Egypt. And uh, we lost uh, uh, the heartland, which is the cities of Hebron, Beit El, Beit Lechem, Shiloh, Shechem. And of course, the holy part of Yerushalayim was lost as well. The, the, the Olives, it was lost to the Jordanians. And they held on to it uh, for uh, their Jordanian illegal occupation for 19 years. From 1948 till 1967. 1967, Israel occupied, no, liberated mm-hmm. our ancestral homeland. A heart of the church. Soon afterwards, there were some Jews who said, we have to come and re our ancestral homeland. Uh, Sadly, the government of Israel at the time was not quite convinced. They thought that they should give it back for peace. Uh, But there were Jews later on to be called settlers who, who, when you hear the word settler, it means brave Jews who hold on to the land of Israel for the rest of us. At least that's the way I think about it. And so we came into Judea and Samaria and began to settle it, resettle it, and hold on to it. So um, Sadly, in the 90s, uh, came a period called the Oslo Process. And in the Oslo Process, uh, large swaths of Judea and Samaria were given to uh, what we understood. We, Jews living in these places, would be a terrorist organization called the Palestinian Authority, which was made up of the PLO, which was made up of the Fatah, which was created in 1964 to evict Jews out of all
1: of Israel. By the way, if if you ever meet
0: anybody who says, end the occupation, just ask them, when did the occupation begin? They don't know. They'll answer you 1948. <laughs> Test it. <laughs> Test And what they mean is Israel, the occupation. They don't mean the, the so called West Bank or Judean Samaria. Okay, so we, the Jews of uh, Hebron and where I live at are the Jews that are trying to hold on to these lands as opposed to the Oslo process. The Oslo process also led eventually to the 2005 disengagement. I was working at the time for Arutz Sheva, Israel National News and Israel National Radio, and I was sent down there to report and actually to try to block along with my fellow protesters, to try to block the disengagement. What was our claim? We said, if we leave Gaza, this was 2005, what's gonna happen is that within a short amount of time this is gonna be taken over by the Jihad, in the form of whatever, ISIS, Hamas, doesn't matter, it's all the same, Al-Qaeda, it's all the same, just different different brands. And we said it would be taken over and they would shoot rockets at us and, and fight with us from our own land. Uh, and uh, we said that would happen within a year, but we were wrong. It happened within a half a year. And so Hamas took over quickly, uh, you know, threw the Fatah folks off roofs, were voted in, and the bottom line is that where we are today I called it, in the beginning, I called it the October 7th War. Some people called it Simchat Torah War. But amongst my friends, we have a different name for it. We call it the Disengagement War. The war that came on the heels of disengagement. Why? Because, my friends, giving away our land to our enemies is dumb. Okay? It is not worth. And it's not because I'm a Jesus. It's actually because I, I reason simply. It is simply a bad idea in the Middle East to give your land away to your enemies. It's just a bad idea. It doesn't work. They don't see it as compromise, beautiful western compromise. They see it as weakness. They see it as an opportunity to get a forward base to attack the rest of Israel. Okay. Uh, We believe, people like myself believe that we should hold on to Judea and Samaria, that we should hold on to Hebron. I think that 3,000 years, way before the Advent of Islam, of living in that land, uh, 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 gives us the right to at least live there, but we think to control it as well. Um, With the help of uh, Larry and Millie and all of you, we're going to be a little bit stronger and a little bit safer there. If you saw the dedication, it says to the people of Hebron and to the visitors of the two of the Patriarchs and Matrix. I hope that all of you will come and feel safer in Hebron. All right, so that was me in Aventura, Miami, receiving that ambulance from the community and especially from Larry and Millie Magid. It was an unbelievable. Uh, a great moment for me, a career highlight. It was amazing to see that actual ambulance with the writing for Chevron on its way. And in general, I got to see American Jewry as uh, they are so emotionally and, and strongly connected to the story of the fight of Israel right now, the story of Israel more generally, but right now the specific fight for Israel. And I got to meet with excellent people, had a dinner with all kinds of big influencers as well, including David Friedman was there and my friend Josh Hammer from Newsweek. And it was like a real power, the, the, the lady that runs uh, Libs of TikTok. Uh, and then I was on the Chabad podcast from the inside out uh, with these amazing uh, ladies, uh, Rifka and Ida. Really, really uh, blew my mind the, the, how professional and how awesome they were. I got to do a lot of amazing stuff in Florida and my trip was three days. I, I slept four hours the first night then I forced myself with a little bit of uh, sleeping pills and stuff to sleep six, night, six hours the next night. And then last night, barely three hours on the airplane. So you could guess that I'm a little bit wired. I'm a little bit funky. I, I'm trying not to drink coffee because it's not so good for me personally. I'm a little bit like allergic to coffee, as, as funny as that may sound. And I'm so happy to be home in the Holy Land. And Florida is beautiful. And Florida is amazing. And, and the Jews there is such a strong and wonderful community, and I'm so happy to be plugged into them. Uh, but I'm so thankful, Baruch Hashem, to be back in the Holy Land, in the land of Judea, and I'm going to Hebron soon, because uh, my organization, Kuma, um, my, you remember, I work for the Jewish community of Hebron, but I have a small kind of side organization called Kuma, and Kuma does a lot of cool things, including helping make this radio show happen. And uh, the, the, we have different projects from time to time, Including in this particular case, helping bring volunteer students from Yeshiva University to Eretz Israel. They are here for a week to just volunteer and to do great things. So I'm very, very proud to be part of that. And in fact, I got to bring them some gloves and some, some garbage bags because I want them to do a little bit of cleaning right before um, we barbecue for uh, the soldiers. That's very exciting. My good friend Baruch Brenner, Baruch and Alana Brenner, they're the importers of Traeger grills. Uh, they're helping sponsor this thing, and it's just an awesome, awesome event. I'm very excited about it uh, uh, to be barbecuing in front of the forefathers and mothers with Jewish students from Chutzlart, from outside of the land of Israel, from Shev University, my alma mater, uh, 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 to the giving food to the Jewish soldiers. You know, guys, it's uh, this war has been such a tragedy, such a, such a calamity, such a catastrophe. And so many miracles and so many beautiful things at the same time. That's what it's really been. So it's both of those things. Right now in Israel, also, rockets are fired at us from the north. About 50 rockets have hit, tried to penetrate Israel. Uh, and uh, the war is very much on. And so... Um, there's also something brewing, which is some kind of deal to try to release hostages or part of the hostages. That's being held up right now. And the question is, uh, releasing hostages, uh, do you, to release those hostages, is it right to release terrorists? And the, the real question is, what is the proper price to pay for the big mitzvah, the big commandment of a relinquishing, uh, 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 no, releasing, getting the release, securing the release of hostages? so uh, let's ask that question from a Torah perspective this is a legal question it's a Torah question and our very own Rabbi Shimshon Hakohen Nadel uh, from Yerushalayim uh, has the answers for us and contemplation for us about you know how the Torah sees the big question of what is the proper price for the release of hostages of course you know this is an emotional issue and, and a national issue but it's also a Torah issue Rabbi Shimshon Nadel Hakohen from Yerushalayim take it away
2: Shalom Yishai. Early Wednesday morning it was announced that the Israeli government approved a deal which would guarantee the release of 50 of our hostages in exchange for a four-day ceasefire. Israel will also release 150 women and teenagers currently held in Israeli prisons and allow the entry of fuel and aid into the Gaza Strip. The deal includes a provision to extend the ceasefire by one day for every 10 hostages Hamas releases. The mitzvah of Pilyon shuim redeeming captives is called by our sages a mitzvah rabba a great mitzvah the rambam emphasizes that there is no mitzvah as great as redeeming captives and citing the maharik the shulchan Aruch adds that every moment delayed in redeeming a captive is akin to spilling blood in fact a community may use the public funds collected to build a synagogue or sell the supplies purchased to build a synagogue in order to redeem a captive. There's even a discussion if a community may sell a synagogue that's already standing to redeem a captive. The mitzvah is so great that according to Tosvot, one may even sell a Torah scroll to redeem a captive. But are some ransoms too exorbitant, some costs too high, some demands too unreasonable? The Mishnah in the fourth chapter of Gitin states we do not ransom captives for more than they are worth because of tikkun haolam, literally the rectification of the world. It is one of a number of enactments our sages made for the betterment of society, or to prevent the deterioration of the very fabric of our society. The Talmud there suggests two reasons why it is forbidden to pay an unreasonable ransom. One, it is too great a burden for the community to bear. Or two, it will encourage the taking of captives for ransom in the future. Rashi explains that the practical difference between these two answers would be if one of the captives has a wealthy relative. In such a case, it would place no burden on the community, but would still possibly encourage the taking of captives in the future. So which one is it? What's the concern here? The Talmud continues and relates how Levi-Bendarga ransomed his daughter for 13,000 golden dinars of his own money. A crazy amount. Abaye asks, but who says that he acted with the consent of the sages? Maybe he acted without the consent of the sages. And the Talmud there leaves this question unresolved. But elsewhere, in Tractate Tubot, the Talmud discusses the obligation of a husband to ransom his wife. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel rules that a husband does not have to pay more than the amount stipulated in his wife's Ketubah, her marriage document, and in general, we do not pay an excessive ransom for a captive because of tikkun haolam, the betterment of society. In this case, even if the husband is willing to pay an excessive amount, placing no burden on the community whatsoever, he is not obligated to do so, and as some explain, he is not even permitted to do so. This would suggest that the overriding concern of our sages is encouraging the taking of captives in the future. Indeed, the rambam, and the Shulchan Aruch both rule that it is not permitted to pay an excessive ransom so as not to encourage our enemies to take captives in the future. But are there exceptions to the rule? Tosvot rules that a captive may pay an excessive amount to redeem himself, and by extension, his wife. And based upon a story in Gitin, page 58a, an excessive ransom may be paid for an exceptional Torah scholar. In addition, it is permitted to pay an excessive amount for one whose life is in imminent danger, according to Tosvot. But the Ramban and others disagreed. The Ramban explained that whenever someone is taken hostage or captive, there is always the threat of death. That is the very nature of kidnapping. And yet our sages prohibited one from paying an outrageous amount to discourage kidnapping. So, this is a major machloket haposkim. This is a major debate and discussion among the sages. According to the Radbaz, it has become the accepted norm for Jews to pay more than the fair market value, but no more than a ransom paid for non Jewish captives, as that would be considered excessive. The Maharshal even praises those Gomlei Chasadim, those. Jews who act with tremendous piety and righteousness and pay more than necessary to redeem Jews from captivity, especially when the captive's life is in danger. But what is considered an excessive ransom today for the families of the 240 hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza, desperately waiting for their return, no price is too high, no demand too great to get their loved ones back? But this question is far from simple and the subject of much discussion and debate among contemporary authorities. In May 1985, Israel released 1,150 prisoners in exchange for three Israeli soldiers taken captive during the First Lebanon War. The controversial Jibril Agreement, one of several prisoner exchanges, generated much criticism at the time by many, among them Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, citing many of the sources, mentioned, Rabbi Gorin believed that freeing 1,150 prisoners was an unreasonable ransom and would encourage future kidnappings, placing our soldiers in danger. In fact, among those released was Ahmed Yassin, who would later go on to co-found Hamas and serve as its spiritual leader. But Rabbi Sholi Yisraeli disagreed with Rabbi Gorin and argued that the state of Israel is obligated to redeem its soldiers at all costs. He explained that as a soldier is a shaliach, an agent of the state, he argued that just as we mentioned an individual is permitted to pay an excessive sum to redeem himself, the state may pay a hefty cost to redeem its soldiers. The state in this case would be considered like a private individual almost. He also argued that since captives are in certain imminent danger, vada'i sakana, this overrides the concern of future cap- future kidnappings and captures, which would only be considered safek sakana, possible danger. But perhaps this whole discussion is really irrelevant, as maybe the, the rules of law in Jewish law or the rules of engagement here are different. In a response, from Rabbi Chaim David Halevi defended the state of Israel's decision to release prisoners in exchange for the return of IDF soldiers, because he believed that the release of prisoners does not pose any new previously non-existent danger since, quote, these terror groups will always, always do all they can to harm Jews by all means possible. And there is no doubt that if they could, they would sacrifice themselves and kidnap soldiers and citizens every day in order to release their prisoners being held by Israel, end quote. In other words, Rabbi Chaim David Alevi was saying that the whole discussion and the whole reason for why our sages prohibited paying an outrageous ransom was to discourage kidnappings, but that maybe was concerning uh, families or communities. When it comes to a war, our enemies are always always going to uh, try to take soldiers captives. So uh, we we are not encouraging them. (laughs) We're not encouraging them to... uh, take more captives in the future, they need no encouraging. That's what, that's what he, he believed. He also added, and uh, this is, this is uh, I, I think, a point that uh, should be considered seriously, that if the state of Israel's policy is not to redeem captive soldiers, this would be a devastating blow to our soldiers' morale and will cause soldiers to retreat rather than risk capture. It's worth noting that Rabbi Gorin subsequently changed his mind when he republished the article in one of his books, Torah Hamidinat, and ended up concluding, like Rabbi Israeli and Rabbi Halevi, that it is permitted to release prisoners in exchange for the safe return for our soldiers. This issue became the subject of much discussion and debate once again in October 2011, when 1,027 prisoners were released in exchange for Gilad Shalit, who was held for over five years in Gaza. At the time, Israeli chief rabbis Shlomo Amar and Yonah Metzger released a statement supporting the deal. In subsequent years, at least six Israelis have been murdered in attacks planned or perpetrated by prisoners released during the Shalit deal. And among those prisoners released were Hamas leaders and terrorists with Jewish blood on their hands, including Yachiar Sinwar, the leader of Hamas since 2017 was considered to be the architect or mastermind of the October 7th attacks. The question of exchanging prisoners for hostages is far from simple. Our hope and fervent prayer is that Hashem return all of the hostages to their homes together with our holy soldiers safely and speedily. Amen. Wishing all of the listeners Blessings from Jerusalem.
0: Thank you very much, Rabbi Shimshon. Uh, that is fantastic. And thank you very much for taking us. And this is what Rabbi Shimshon does so well is that he. He, he takes a a, a real, uh, uh, you know, what we call aktuali, an a ac- actual political and a national issue, and gives us the Torah perspective on it. And that's the proper thing to do, to have a Torah perspective uh, on, the, on the national issues of Israel. It's actually so simple, right? Israel should be governed by Torah, and therefore we should ask, what is the Torah governance suggestion? Wonderful. Uh, another thing that Israel uh, tries to be good at, sometimes we're good at it, is self-defense. Uh, we have a whole army called the, you know, the IDF, the Israel Defense Force uh, we also have a personal fighting technique like, called Krav Maga uh, made fun of very uh, humorously by the Simpsons, Krav Maga Bart Simpson who was trying to mess with this Israeli girl and uh, she gave him Krav Maga and took care of business, that was really cool so what is Krav Maga uh, what, where does it come from, what does the word mean and what is its history, our own you know, intrepid one and only Ben Bresky is out there in the world lo- lo- teaching us about history, and he's got a cover on the story of Krav Maga, its beginnings and its uses and its uh, Israeliness in uh, self defense. Ben Bresky on Krav Maga, take it away.
1: This is a moment in Jewish history. Krav Maga is a fighting style developed in Israel and taught in the Israeli Defense Force to police and to private citizens. It was developed as a method for anyone to learn self-defense quickly. Krav Maga was created by Imi Lichtenfeld, who developed the method while fighting anti-Jewish gangs in Bratislava. He escaped Europe during World War II and moved to Israel, where he trained IDF soldiers for over 15 years. The following is a recording of him giving a class in the 1980s. Everybody can learn it, and everybody must learn it, not only Jewish. We, Jewish people, and the Israeli need friends. And the easiest thing to make friends with martial art with young people, they get respect, and automatically respect for the Jewish community in the whole world. And we too. And that is for us most necessary. Born in Budapest, the Lichtenfeld family moved to Bratislava, where his father, Samuel Lichtenfeld, ran a gym and taught boxing and wrestling. In the 1930s, anti-Semitic gangs began to form in Bratislava. Emi Lichtenfeld helped defend Jewish neighborhoods with other Jewish boxers and wrestlers. This is when he developed a style more suited for actual street fighting as opposed to in the ring. In 1940, Lichtenfeld left Europe to relocate to the land of Israel, then under British control. He boarded a ship called the Poncho, which picked up other Jewish refugees and concentration camp survivors fleeing from Nazi-occupied Europe. During the voyage, a child almost drowned in the water. Lichtenfeld dove in to save him. He developed an ear infection as a result. The vessel was shipwrecked off the coast of Greece, and Lichtenfeld was among those who were sent in a rowboat to get help, eventually being located by the British Navy. Lichtenfeld was then drafted into the British Army and served in the Czech unit. In 1942, he finally immigrated to the land of Israel and joined the Haganah, the pre-state defense unit. There, he trained members in hand-to-hand combat. After Israel's independence and the creation of the IDF, he served for over 15 years as an instructor, where he developed the Krav Maga system. In 1964, Lichtenfeld retired from the army and opened a Krav Maga school in Netanya. Since then, the system has spread throughout Israel, being taught to children and senior citizens as well as security and police. Lichtenfeld emphasized self-respect and values and taught his students to avoid confrontations and to use force as a last resort. In 1978, he and senior students formed the Israeli Krav Maga Association and later the International Krav Maga Federation. The following is from a news broadcast from 1981 during a Krav Maga seminar in the United States.
3: Emi Lichtenfeld is 71 years old, but he's more than a match for attackers half his age and twice his size. He learned to be tough as a young man in Bratislava, Czechoslovakia. When Nazi youth gangs roamed the streets in the 1930s, a Jewish boy had two choices, hit or run. Lichtenfeld hit back, and those down and dirty street brawls were the beginning of a self-defense technique he now teaches to Israeli soldiers and police. It's called Krav Maga, Hebrew for contact fight. It's similar to judo or karate, but anything goes.
1: You use it if you have to use it, but try not to use it.
3: There are two rules, don't use any more force than you have to, and don't get hit. And in just a few minutes, I learned the technique of fending off a blow from any direction.
1: Outside, outside, outside.
3: Israeli children learn Krav Maga in school to build confidence and self-discipline and the skills they will need to fight in the Israeli army.
1: But there are others credited with helping establish an Israeli martial art in the early years. Yehuda Marcus, who escaped Germany, came to Israel with the Hechalutz movement in the 1930s and helped write a book in Hebrew called Practical Judo. There was also a book published in Hebrew in 1930 called Jiu-Jitsu and Self-Defense, which was used as a training manual for the Haganah. It was written by Dr. Moshe Feldenkrais, who later became famous around the world for the Feldenkrais Method, a type of exercise therapy used for pain relief. But that is a story for another time. If you would like to hear more about any of the stories I briefly touched upon in a future episode, leave me a note at benbrasky.substack.com. This has been a moment in Jewish history. Thank you to Yishai Fleischer. Thank you to all the listeners, and shalom.
0: All right, that was awesome. Thank you, Ben, for that awesome segment. You are a great Krav Magaist in terms of your teachings in history. And we got to all be Krav Maga out there, folks. we got to be Krav Maga of, of, of God in this world. I want to finish off the show. I know it's a short show, and some of you will thank me for that. Uh, but I have so many things to get to. I got to get to this barbecue. I got to get to the students. I got to do stuff for Chevron stuff, and I just landed. And I told you I'm underslept, and so uh, I gotta, you know. And and you guys know all the folks that make this show happen. If you're a regular listener, we have uh, so many, so many great sponsors of the show. But I don't have time for that right now. But I do want to thank the staff: Yochevit Seidman, Moshe Herman, Ben Bresky, Tabitha, Lou, and we're live, and Moshe Herman. Uh, make the show happen. So I want to thank them very much. I want you to check out IshaiFlyShow.com and I want to thank all the good people that donate through... BuyMeACoffee.com forward slash Yishai. You guys are making my life joyous. And I thank every single person who's who's out there supporting uh, the cause. And that's what it is. This show is not a show. It's not a radio show. It's a cause. It's a cause in audio form. The cause is the rebirth of Israel. The cause is God's vision in this world. The cause is bringing Torah light into the universe through the advent of the Jewish people's return to land of Israel. Through the mechanism of the state of Israel. A lot of stuff is happening. There's good, there's bad, there's ugly, there's beautiful. But it's actually all beautiful because it really is all from Hashem. Uh, even the losses are so painful and we cry and, and our heart is broken and so many families are broken. And yet we trust that in the grand scheme, Hashem is holding all those souls that He loves and He protects His loved ones. If, uh, if, if somebody gets killed, then they get reborn. And I want to tell you that I heard an amazing piece of news. Uh, as I was driving over here from the airport, I heard that since the onset of the war, there's been about 17,000 births in Israel. And many of those, over 100, have been named names dealing with the October 7th Black Sabbath uh, attacks. Names like Oz and Nir uh, and other names like that that bespeak uh, of what was tragically destroyed and will be rebuilt through the hope of the born child in the land of Israel in the state of Israel, so I want to thank Hashem so much for the that, that that piece of news that we're being born, that we're being reborn. And every single person that was taken, I believe, and you know, you could say to me, Isha, what are you, a mystic? I believe that those souls are reborn instantaneously uh, in in the next generation, and and those souls are, are not lost. The body may be lost, but not the souls. The pain is still there, but the uh, the the eternal judge sees all things and, and protects the, the souls of his beloved ones. Finally, I want to say uh, that this week's Torah portion is uh, has the incredible story of Jacob's dream of the ladder. And I could give a long class on it, Baruch Hashem. I love that story so much. And I lived in Beit El, where the dream of the ladder happened. Suffice it to say, my friends... That the vision of the ladder itself not suffice it to say. Let me be brief to say it's not suffice at all. The Torah should be learned every day for hours and 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 loved and 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 d- deeply uh, yearned and sought after every single day of our life. So uh, let me not say that suffice to say, but let me brief to say that the ladder had its feet on the ground and its head in the heavens. And that is what a human being who follows God, and especially a Jew, is supposed to be: feet on the ground, practical stuff, get stuff, ha- make stuff happen, make this world change it, move it, uh, uh, touch it, uh, put a dent in it. But the head has to be in the heavens with great ideals, and that our head has to bring down to our feet. Yaakov is—he's—he's uh, at—he's um, the feet, right? He's laying down, and the feet is, is where his head is. But as his, but his—that's you know touching the ground but his but his mind his neshama is in the heavens uh and that's uh what what we have to be we have to both of those things we have to have our feet on the ground and our head with great ideals and great connections to the heavenly and bring down those angels we got to bring up the prayers and bring down those angels and make amazing things happen in this world all right folks i wish you blessings lots of blessings from the land of israel a land in battle an embattled country and yet the uh the light of Mashiach is upon us. That doesn't mean it's coming necessarily right now, but but there's a light. There's a light right now, and we've got to do as much as we can to utilize this crisis to bring God's vision forward. And we have to not allow ourselves to get depressed and only push forward. And I want to tell you that I was, I was in Florida now. I was driving, and I was driving towards Boca, and I was passing... Uh, 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 what's that... Um, what's the airport they're called? Um... But, uh, no, I was heading to Boca Raton. I was heading up... I forgot the name of it right now. You guys all know the name. I know the name also. I'm just too tired. In any case, so uh, so I'm, I'm driving past uh, the, the airport. And I didn't even notice that it was the airport. Suddenly, a humongous jet crosses right in front of me. And that jet says... has a It was a big yellow jet. And it's crossing right in front of me on the road. And it says in big letters, SPIRIT. Now, I'm not recommending that you fly Spirit Airlines. What I'm saying is... Hashem sent me a message, which is it's about the Spirit. Don't get dejected. Right now is the time to push forward. Even if our government doesn't do everything right... The Jewish story is moving ahead, and we got to use this time to sanctify the lives that were lost as much as possible, and to push that story ahead. So I'm bringing you lots of blessings. I'm sending you blessings. I was just in Florida, now I'm back in the Holy Land, and I'm sending you, wherever you are, those blessings of, of the love of Israel, the fight for Israel, and God's light that's coming down to this world. Stay tuned, stay strong, stay connected. Lots of love, lots of good things, lots of blessings, and may we w- have victory at eternity uh, and, and the light of Mashiach indeed will come into this world. God bless you guys. Lots of love and shalom.